The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, you can immediately see that if that's what U.S. and U.K. practice is, that it is completely out of step with the practice of the Israel Defense Forces in the current campaign in, in Gaza. And when I say out of step, I'm, I'm, it's, it seems pretty clear that the Israeli tolerance for civilian casualties is not just greater or quite a lot greater, it's, it's multiples greater than that employed by, by the U.S. I'm Heyman Hahn, Associate Editor at Lawfare. This is the Lawfare Podcast for November 30th, 2023. Israel's military response to Hamas's October 7th massacre has raised deep concern from international legal observers and the general public. The IDF's tactics have been described as, quote, disproportionate and not taking sufficient care to avoid killing civilians or damaging civilian infrastructure as the law of armed conflict requires. When it comes to incidental casualties in particular, Mark Latimer, executive director of Ceasefire Center for Civilian Rights, recently argued on Lawfare's pages that Israel's tolerance for civilian deaths seems to surpass even that of the US and the UK's in the war against ISIS. I talked to him about the case study he used to make this point, an analysis of Israel's decision to carry out airstrikes in the Jabalia refugee camp in October. We compared that to what happened in the Battle of Mosul in 2014, and then got into the bigger differences between Israel's war against Hamas and the war against ISIS. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 30th, comparing civilian casualty tolerance in the Israel-Hamas war to the war against ISIS, with Mark Latimer. You recently wrote for Lawfare about the Israeli airstrikes on the Jabalia refugee camp. Can you tell us what the Jabalia camp is and what happened there? Yes, so Jabalia is, is, is a big refugee camp in northern Gaza. It houses mostly uh, refugees from 1948, but also others from uh, other, other, other parts of Gaza. And it, it, it's very densely populated. Just to give you some idea, um, but certainly before the start of the conflict, it was at least twice as densely populated as the island of Manhattan. So there are a lot of people there. And on the 31st of October, Israel launched uh, an attack on Jabalia camp, which destroyed a large area of residential housing and created hundreds of casualties, of civilian casualties. And this is a known United Nations refugee camp, right? 
Yeah. So the figures on 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 the population essentially there were 110,000 people as registered refugees with UNRWA, with the UN Relief and Works Agency for for, for Palestine, in an area of about 1.4 square miles. And how many people died because of this attack? Well, the final figures aren't out, but it's pretty clear that it was at least over 100. Both the director of the local Indonesia hospital, who reported some uh, 120 dead immediately following the attack, uh, but then subsequently in investigations by independent monitoring groups who have also come out with similar figures, we can be pretty certain that... um, over 100 people died and several hundred were seriously injured. Right. And what was the target for this airstrike? Right. So one of the really interesting things and one of the reasons why it actually makes a very important example of of Israel's tolerance for civilian casualties is because we know quite a lot about not just what happened to the civilians, but we also know about what the military objective was. For, for, for most of the campaign in Gaza, we only have a pretty general idea of, uh, of the military uh, objectives within the, the overall aim to destroy Hamas. But we don't know precise military objectives for any given strike. And certainly when you're looking at the conduct of hostilities, that part of international humanitarian law which governs the conduct of hostilities, you have to look on the level of the specific attack. Now, for the Jubalia strike on the 31st of October, we know that because the Israel Defense Forces released quite a detailed statement for them about the fact that it was an airstrike, that it had been intended to kill uh, what they referred to as a senior Hamas commander, a guy called Ibrahim Biari, who was in fact the commander of the Jubalia battalion plus the destruction of that local part of the of the Hamas tunnel system. So we know what the military objective was, and we can use that to help us fill in a, full, a, a fuller picture of whether or not the strike itself was lawful in terms of, of, of the conduct of hostilities, and r- roughly what it tells us about Israel's tolerance for civilian casualties. So... The other strikes that we know of are not as ripe for for analysis in this realm because the objective is not clear or hasn't been as clearly stated as it was for Jabalia. Well, I think that's that's definitely one of the reasons, and I, I think it's I think it's really important to say that that we we have to get right the test that is that is being applied here uh, because it, it it is actually really widely misunderstood and and. It involves sort of trying to balance two things. So first of all, an attacking force has to take constant care to spare the civilian population. It has to you know, be, be careful about the means and you know what means and methods of attack it chooses to take precautions to, to avoid or in any or, or in any case minimize uh, civilian death and injury. So that, that's a sort of general a general point. But as I think people more and more people are going becoming to understand civilian killing is not necessarily unlawful under the geneva conventions and under the the customs of war it it can be lawful to kill civilians provided that 
their deaths are incidental to an attack on a military objective. But then you also have to apply a proportionality test to to see whether the expected civilian casualties or civilian harm is going to be excessive. So there are two things that I just want to say about this this test, but both are quite widely misunderstood. The, the first thing is that it's a, it's prospective. It it doesn't actually compare the number of civilians that have been killed or the number of civilians on both sides or whatever. It's it's actually a test that looks forward. You have to place yourself in the mind of the commander who is ordering the attack and essentially what they have to do is to say on the one hand what is the expected civilian harm death injury damage to civilian objects the expected civilian harm and is that excessive in relation to the military advantage anticipated so two things in the future expected civilian harm military advantage and somehow they have to balance those two things and where the civilian harm appears excessive and that's the word used in in the geneva conventions then it is prohibited to take to carry out that attack now it's it's probably obvious to people listening that that it's quite hard to compare civilian casualties on the one hand and expectation of civilian casualties on the one hand and on the other military advantage i mean they don't have a common sort of unit of measurement so it is quite difficult to compare those two things and i think that's one of the reasons why despite the huge civilian cost of the campaign to date in gaza we've heard a lot of military lawyers we've heard a lot of international humanitarian lawyers saying well it's quite difficult to know whether it was legal or illegal because we don't know what happened in that command center we don't know what was the knowledge available to the commander at the time and unless you know that you can't really make an informed assessment as to whether or not the expected civilian casualties were excessive and therefore whether or not they were disproportionate compared to the military advantage now with the jabalia strike we know these things we know enough about them because we've either been told by the israel defense forces or we can make some reasonable assumptions from the demographics the pattern of population spread and so on and so forth so we just talked about the military advantage essentially this Hamas commander in the tunnels and on the other hand we have to say yes but what was the expected civilian harm from launching what was really a massive strike there were at least four or five large munitions including probably two 2000 pound joint direct attack munitions which took down not one residential building but a whole block so i think any reasonable estimate particularly given that in the days before other attacks in jabalia had resulted in high civilian death tolls i think any reasonable commander contemplating an attack of that size must have expected you know an actual death toll which was pretty close to what unfortunately transpired which was hundreds of civilians killed and and injured and so even if they successfully did 
target and kill a Hamas leader, one of the architects, I believe, of the October 7th massacre. That's not enough to to, to balance out what you're, you're arguing would have been a reasonable knowledge of the casualty counts that would have followed. I would say that was clearly disproportionate. Mm-hmm. Let's look at what the US and the UK has done over 20 years of major counter-terrorist campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan and other theatres of war. And I think if you look at those and you start to sort of delve a little bit more detail about what was understood to be the tolerance for civilian casualties, about what was the legal advice over time and how it changed in respect of different threats, in respect of different military objectives, then I think you can build up a pretty clear picture of how Israel's tolerance for civilian casualties in Gaza compares with the US tolerance for casualties in, say, the war against ISIS or the war against Al-Qaeda. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's get into that. So can you walk us through a comparison with what you would deem to have been one of the most misdirected efforts within the ISIS campaign? Yeah. So if you take something like the siege of Mosul, which took place over nine months, we have confirmed that not from the siege as a whole, but specifically from bombardment by the coalition, so by mainly US and UK forces, that over 3,000 people were were killed, over 3,000 civilians were killed. And, and many independent groups put it much higher than that over a period of nine months. But actually, if, if you think about the test that I just outlined, which has to be for each specific attack and is a prospective test, it isn't actually the, the, the final death tolls that you're comparing. What you have to look at is what happened in those command centers. What you have to look at what happened in terms of the advice given by the military lawyers to the commanders as they were conducting operations. And what, what we saw was that from, from the start, there was a high level of concern about civilian casualties generally. And that quickly was kind of, you know, put aside or or modified because of this overriding imperative to destroy Al-Qaeda, to destroy those who who, who carried out the 9-11 attacks. And the the difficulty was was to say, right, well, if, if the law, if the Geneva Conventions require you to make this difficult balancing act between expected civilian casualties and anticipated military advantage, how actually are we going to do this in practice? And particularly if you're talking about commanders who who in battlefield conditions may not have a lot of time to to think about this. So perhaps almost naturally, people started talking about numbers and, and they developed a system of thinking about really what was the benchmark acceptable uh, civilian casualty ratio well, it became this thing called the NCV, the non-combatant casualty cutoff value. And that became an essential part of the rules of engagement. So what was the NCV? It was the number of civilians that could lawfully be killed incident to an attack on a military target. You've always got to remember that it, it is prohibited in all circumstances to deliberately target civilians 
But if you have a military target, what would be considered an acceptable level of civilian collateral damage? And that really was what the NCV, the non-competent casualty cutoff value, tried to put into an actual figure. Now, you have to remember that, that NCVs, just like all rules of engagement, they're not, they're not actually statements of the law, but they're the way in which the legal limits are operationalized across a campaign, across a unit, in an operation. And effectively, what it meant was that, that if a particular commander, say, thought they had a really valuable target and they weren't sure that they were going to be able to stay within the NCV, they would have to escalate it. They would have to ask a senior commander. And ultimately, they might have to ask the CENTCOM commander, you know, the, the commander of US Central Command, which was in the case of the coalition operations against ISIS, which was which was coordinating the, the operation, or ultimately to the commander in chief. So what were these figures? Well, I mean, for most of the 20 years, the NCV or its equivalent was in single figures. The NCV, like all rules of engagement, is classified, but, but we know that because of the number of interviews and the number of, uh, including from senior former military who've talked about it. For a really big operation, for, for, for a really important military target, how high did it go? Well, when commanders wanted to breach the NCV, one of the people they were calling up on a fairly regular basis was Lloyd Austin, because he at the time was the CENTCOM commander for the first chunk of the anti-ISIS war. And a high civilian casualty rate was 14 or 15. So that was towards the upper end of the limit. And we, we, we know from, from the reports that are available, including from senior commanders, but we believe that the, 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 the rate for the actual operation to kill Osama bin Laden was around 30, 30. So, so that are the sorts of numbers that we're talking about as employed by the US military. I happen to, to know that, that the UK military, on the whole, it was the, the numbers were hugely reduced. That the tolerance for civilian casualties was much lower for the um, for the Royal Air Force for the UK forces, but with the US we're talking about that level. Now you can immediately see that if that's what US and UK practice is, that it is completely out of step with the practice of the Israel Defence Forces in the current campaign in in Gaza. And when I say out of step, I'm, I'm, it's, it seems pretty clear that the Israeli tolerance for civilian casualties is not just greater or quite a lot greater. It's, it's multiples greater than that employed by, by the US. Do we know anything about whether the Israeli military operations are considering things like NCVs? I understand that the NCVs are not being used by the US anymore, right? Yeah, so so NCVs were sort of disbanded uh, relatively recently. But you know, one of the reasons one of the main reasons why they were disbanded was 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 actually not a concern about the top end of casualties. It was a concern about the lower end. I mean, the, the fear was that if you put an NCV on an operation, that would effectively be like saying actually it's fine if you kill some civilians. Uh, whereas actually the legal duty is to take constant care 
to spare civilian life, to avoid or minimize uh, civilian harm. So, so, so basically, to try to avoid civilian casualties at all, and by by kind of putting a finger on it, you're starting to sort of confuse or compromise that basic duty. Now, Israel, as far as I'm aware, has never used exactly the same system, but it does have a very long tradition of caring deeply about international humanitarian law. The Israeli military advocate general, the the, the MAG Corps, which is basically the equivalent of the US JAGS, the Judge Advocate General Corps in the US. So these are the military lawyers. They answer to to the military advocate general, who, who, who in turn is overseen by the Israeli attorney general, and all of that falls within the supervisory jurisdiction of the Israel Supreme Court. So actually, you know, the system, the, the system of, of legal oversight of military operations is probably stronger in Israel, at least on paper, than it is in the US. So you have to ask yourself a, a number of questions. What actually is happening? We know because of, of previous practice that the lawyers are there. The lawyers will be there in the, in, in the command centers. When, when Israel goes to war, it takes its, it brings the lawyers along. But is their advice being ignored? or overruled or are they have they developed an approach to acceptable civilian killing which as i say is just way out of proportion to anything that the us or for that matter the uk has contemplated over the last 20 years life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And has there been any other attacks since the Jabalia attack on the 31st of October that has raised flags for you in terms of keeping an eye on the IDF's willingness or tolerance for uh, civilian casualties? Well, I think the, the, the other really emblematic case has been the Israeli attacks on hospitals and in particular the Al-Shifa hospital. Because you have to understand that quite apart from the rules on proportionality and the rules on taking precautions in attack, there is a special protection in the Geneva Conventions and in international humanitarian law for hospitals and medical facilities. That There are different rules protecting those facilities. And, um, you know, even if hospitals are used for shielding in the sense that, that you know, a, a fighter with an RPG can fire off 
his weapon standing next to a hospital and and, and think that the that being next to the hospital is going to give him some protection. Even if that happens, the hospital doesn't lose its special protection. You can hit the fighter, but you cannot. I mean, and in, and in targeting the fighter, you might be, you know, creating a, a danger of collateral damage for the hospital, which, which would be legal. But you cannot attack the hospital directly because it, it retains its special protection. And I think that is a really important norm of international humanitarian law. And we see that certainly being chipped away in what we've seen over the last the last few weeks. And I think I think you have to realize, for example, that civilian objects generally, and this once again is one of those things that isn't widely understood about about the legal protections in conflict. Civilian objects generally cannot be targeted, but if different circumstances arise, i.e., because they are used or by nature of their location or their purpose, they may become military objectives. So, so the example we we tend to use is a bridge. So that's a civilian object; you you can't destroy it. But you know, if an army, if an opposing army is advancing, uh, it could become a military objective because of where it is and because of its purpose in enabling that advancing army to cross to, to cross a river. So, so civilian objects can become military objectives, dependent on their location, purpose, or use, but. The special protection for hospitals means that the same rules do not apply only if they are used to conduct acts hostile to the enemy do they lose their special protection. They cannot lose their special protection just because of their strategic location. They cannot lose their special protection if they are used to treat wounded combatants, for example, who are hors de combat or who are out of the fight. They can only lose it if they are actually used to commit acts uh, hostile to the enemy. So the fact that the Al-Shifa and the other hospitals in Gaza continue to be obviously used as medical facilities, I mean, I don't think Israel ever doubted for one moment that they were continuing to be used as medical facilities. Uh, We had you know, reports from inside the hospitals on almost a daily basis uh, means that they should have retained their special protection unless it became absolutely clear that they were actually being used, that each building was being used for acts hostile to the enemy. And I don't think that was ever clear. And and even then, I mean, once Israel, once the Israel Defense Forces had occupied the hospital, it clearly then was no longer being used to commit acts hostile to the enemy, and therefore it should have been allowed to continue with its humanitarian purpose. So I think uh, apart from the Jabalia camp attack, which showed that, which had, was an unusual situation because we had so much information about exactly what had happened. We can also see that in in other aspects of the campaign in in Gaza, there are concerns, specific concerns about Israel's adherence to international humanitarian law. And just to quickly round out the hospital discussion, what would you say to someone who would point out that maybe Hamas didn't need to have put their operations inside under 
adjacent to so close to a hospital. Well, I, and I would that. go further than, than that. It, it's not just that they didn't need to, that, that, that they were clearly prohibited by the standards for, for doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you cannot locate military objectives next to hospitals or other civilian objects. And, and particularly next to hospitals, there is a very, very strong prohibition. Now, unfortunately, as we know, Hamas has a long record of, of, of using civilians as, uh, as human shields, in particular, you know, launching rocket attacks from near civilian objects, uh, as you say, you know, operating in tunnels, which, which are, you know, beneath civilian objects. But the fundamental rule is you can attack the tunnels, but you can't attack a hospital which has special protection. And I don't think particularly, you know, in the last stages of, of Israel taking control of Al-Shifa, it, it became very clear that certainly uh, as they were discovering tunnels, they, they, they could have put, in fact, they did put tunnels out of action. But as I say, the, the fact that there were Hamas operating near the hospital for all the wrong reasons does not in itself remove the special protection from the hospital, which can only be lost if the facility itself is being used to commit acts hostile to the enemy. Mm-hmm. Zooming out a little bit, do you think that the type of war that Israel is fighting against Hamas is meaningfully different between that of what the US and UK were doing against ISIS? And does that have any bearing on whether you think there should be different limits to casualties or not? Well, I think that's a very difficult question. It's a sort of quite a political question in, in the proper sense of the word. And I I, I think, it, I think it, it, it's an interesting comparison, if only because Israel is promoting the comparison. I mean, m- many people in Israel, for very o- obvious reasons, after these appalling murderous attacks by Hamas on October the 7th, immediately said, this is our 9-11. And, and I think, uh, you know, you don't have to be an American to, to realize just what that means and, you know, how profoundly the attacks shocked Israeli society as well as, as well as you know, many others of us all around the world. So, so I think, there is that initial comparison, and then, uh, so, uh, of course, that was you know Al Qaeda, but then, but then ISIS as well. I mean, I- Israel has mounted this information campaign, you know, with sort of hashtag Hamas is ISIS, so they are very much sort of trying to promote this equivalence. And I, I really say sort of two things about that. The, the first is that I think if you think about the two groups and where they came from, their ideology, and so on and so forth. I actually think it's quite misleading, if not dangerous, to to, to equate Hamas and ISIS. I mean, apart from anything else, Hamas's strongest international backer is Iran. But Iran was one of ISIS's main adversaries. Mm-hmm. So, so I think you know the, the the geopolitics just don't stack up, even if even if you don't go down to the level of ideology. But I think in terms of of thinking through what they are like as an adversary in the military sense, then then you can see that that actually they're not such a bad comparator. I mean, there are differences. Um, there, there are some sort of striking differences. ISIS conquered and occupied large areas of Iraq and, and, and Syria for the best part of three years, uh, whereas Hamas, of course, has always been you know, confined to, to, to Gaza, except for this dreadful 
raid on on October the seventh, and 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 the constant stream of, of rockets that it's firing, but it, it it's never conquered any other territory. Um, and and the tactics, you know, that, that there are some important differences. I mean, Hamas hasn't, thankfully, hasn't hasn't adopted this, you know, appalling ISIS tactic of of the consistent use of of suicide bombers which was one of you know which was one of the most dreadful features of the of the isis campaign um but but more broadly i think essentially both are non-state armed groups which have significant capabilities but ultimately quite limited capabilities compared to an advanced military like israel or of course in the case of the ISIS war with the coalition, the US, the UK, but they are embedded in the civilian population. They have sort of widespread documented practice of using civilians as, as or civilian locations as, as uh, using civilians as, as human shields and, and, and using hospitals sometimes for shielding purposes. So there is quite a lot of similarity as well. Uh, and many of the same challenges that faced the coalition in addressing ISIS Clearly, Israel faces in trying to trying to defeat Hamas, but I think you know I think it's an instructive comparison, if only because it's the one that Israel has has chosen to to focus on. Yeah, and and President Biden too, I think, in an October speech, likened Hamas to ISIS. I think he said something like it reminds him of the worst of what ISIS did. Yes, and I think you know one, one of the reasons why a lot of people are drawn to the comparison is because both ISIS and Hamas have shown a complete disregard for the basic norms of international humanitarian law, and, and I think that, that that means that that people will reach for that comparison for, for understandable reasons. So far, we've talked about how Israel's actions in Hamas. Are, are quite disproportionate to what the US and the UK did against ISIS. But even back then, there was a kind of Grodian moment for international law where the US and the UK, I mean, mostly the US kind of convinced the international community that even that level of force and military action was justified in, in self-defense. Do you think that something similar might happen coming out of Israel, especially given, again, how much it's been exceeding precedent? Yes, I think I, I certainly, you know, know, know many of my colleagues who are working in the field of civilian protection and international humanitarian law who, who have almost despaired at the idea that actually these things that we teach and we try and we try and promote and we go around the world trying to implement suddenly something can happen like this and people's standards or people's tolerance for civilian casualties suddenly seems to have suddenly seems to have changed i i think you you have you have to what you have to realize is that there is always been a gulf between what the standards say and their implementation the geneva conventions as i've said are a minimum baseline for treatment but they have also been violated on many many occasions but their violation does not take away their the strength of the norm that they set and one of the reasons i say that is because it is 
incredibly rare for, say, a human rights treaty to have universal ratification. But every state in the world, including, of course, Israel and the US and the UK, have ratified the Geneva Conventions. Every state in the world, they are universal. And I think that reflects just how basic those protections are. And therefore, when we see them violated, I think two things happen. Although it, it may lead some people sometime to, you know, occasionally to be, to be shocked at the level of killing, I think also what you see is a reaction. And to my mind, I cannot see how particularly the US and, and the UK can go, go on just providing unqualified support for Israel Defense Forces operations in, in, in Gaza when this level of civilian killing, this tolerance for civilian casualties continues. And certainly if we see extended operations in the south of Gaza, we are going to see based on what we know about Israel's tolerance for civilian casualties, a very, very high level of civilian killing. And I don't think ultimately the Biden administration or the UK government is going to be able to, to accept that. Would you categorize the, the kind of support that has been given to Israel right now from the US and UK as completely unqualified? Well, I think... Um, it started off with with lots of pronouncements saying we stand by Israel, and one can obviously understand after the horrors of October the seventh why that was done. I think essentially what we've had since then is an increasing level of concern expressed, certainly privately, but also in public about what is happening. But it hasn't made any difference to the support that is offered, and I think making that connection is ultimately what has to be done. I mean, there are rules that there's a Leahy vetting process in the, in, in the United States. There are rules about arms transfers, which, which make it very clear that an assessment has to be done about how those arms are going to be used, uh, about whether all legal standards are met in the use of those arms. And as far as I can see, that isn't being done with regard to arms transfers to, 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 to Israel. So, so, so it is actually a case of implementing the existing checks and standards in the US system. And I think putting those to one side, which is what we've seen up to now, is not really sustainable. My last question is about theoretical red lines that you may be drawing as an observer and an advocate on these issues. What for you is the red line to watch out for here and what you would point policymakers and observers to? Well, I, th I think, you know, quite apart from the, you know, the legal limitations on, on the conduct of hostilities, we are just seeing such a massive loss of civilian life now that increasingly there is a, the, 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 there is a global movement to say it is enough that there, there has to be some other way of, of resolving this conflict. There has to be some other way of trying to end the killing. And I think for, from my point of view, because the role of the US is so fundamental as, uh, as a supporter of Israel, I think there is a huge responsibility on the US and other states like the UK who, who follow along to try and 
move towards a uh, some form of resolution which does not involve such massive civilian killing. And I mean, I, just just on the hospitals, I my organisation Ceasefire has, has has an office in in, in West Mosul in the old city, providing uh, legal advice to reparation claimants. And you know, when you cross the Tigris, you see the Al Jumhuria Hospital in Mosul. And when I first saw this, I, I, you know, it was just a sort of smouldering hunk. And I thought, I just what had happened there? And when I looked into it, of course, it had been attacked by the coalition. This hospital had been attacked by the coalition. It was bombed by, by the US Air Force. But it was very clear that it was being used by ISIS, that ISIS had mounted attacks from the hospital, that it had ceased being used as a medical facility, that the medical staff had all run away, and that ISIS was actually firing from the hospital and sending out suicide bombers from the hospital building to attack the surrounding forces. And even then, the US Air Force didn't attack before it actually received official permission from the Iraqi government, because basically the international prohibition on attacking hospitals was so strong that they felt they needed some extra cover, uh, even under those circumstances. So you see that I think in looking at US practice, looking at the practice of other militaries over the last 20 years, you can see a set of standards being employed. And, you know, I've spent years criticizing uh, the practice of the coalition, particularly in Mosul and Raqqa, because I thought the level of civilian casualties was was unacceptable there. But if you compare it now to what's happening in 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 Gaza, you you really see a further serious bending of those legal limits, and as I say, a tolerance for civilian casualties, which which really is is several multiples greater. Well, thank you so much for for being here, Mark. We appreciate your analysis. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.